Do you want to start off talking about um, the Turing Chronicles, your next novel? The Turing Chronicles, yes. This is a this is a novel I've wanted to write for a while. It's uh, Alan Turing. He's a a very important figure in that he sort of invented the concept of the modern computer, mm-hmm. and then. Uh, he was also active in the Second World War. He helped break the code the Germans were using to communicate, I think, with their submarines. Mm. And then late in his life, he got into, he was one of the first people to do something with biotechnology. He, he did a mathematical model for how a cow generates its spots. <laughs> right. And uh, I've always felt that touring might have been murdered by the British Secret Service because he was homosexual. He came unwisely came out to the police and then they they subjected him to this unpleasant hormone treatment and then after that he was uh, supposedly killed himself in a, a very curious way with an apple that had cyanide in it. That's right, a poison apple, yes, like, yeah. like Snow White. He was a big fan of the movie Snow White. He uh, used to skip down the hall singing <laughs> the, the, the song from it. He was quite a, quite a character, you know, didn't really care what people thought of him. And uh, so I always had the idea that maybe the British Secret Service murdered him because uh, it wasn't so much the atomic secrets. He had some involvement with those as well, but just uh, this code-breaking effort, that it was a secret that it had even happened. And so, uh, so I set my novel up so that in the first chapter, there's some agents that are trying to poison Turing with cyanide, and he manages to escape the poisoning. But the man he's with, his, his boyfriend, gets killed, and then Turing has the idea of switching their faces. And this plays in with something Turing talked about called the imitation game. Of course, yes, yes. And which is, supposedly it was about a person imitating a machine, but he also used the example of a man imitating a woman, which was in a lower transreal level, was something meaningful to him. But then in my novel, he's switching faces. And so usually when people write about Turing, if they write fiction about him, they always sort of write as if homosexuality was a a lethal disease. And it's sort of very somber and sad, you know, poor Turing. And I wanted to do something where it was more flamboyant and outrageous. And my model for that was William Burroughs, because he, he just had a, you know, a very spirited way of writing about himself that you never really felt sorry for him by any means. Uh, so Turing flees and goes to uh, Tangier after he gets his new face. And then he cooks up with Burroughs there and they become lovers in, in a couple of ways. Burroughs used to joke about having the ability to schlup somebody, to like dissolve yourself into a giant slug and sort of absorb their body. 
and then Turing, his, his experiments with growing new faces get so he can actually do, to give your whole body this ability to be uh, shape-shifting. And so he and Burroughs merge together and uh, they really enjoy it. And then, uh, then Turing wants to go to America. And he takes on the form of a woman for the trip and uh, gets to America and somehow there's, there's people that are on to him. But he has this, this ability now to make this sort of a contagious thing, the shape-shifting. And uh, when the people that can do that, they're called skugs, which is kind of a joke word for slug. And or they're called skuggers because they can do that. And then... Uh, the, uh, it's also sort of, the, ho the whole thing it's said in the 50s, so it's a sort of objective correlative of the 50s terror of communism, homosexuality, uh, drug use. It's like these, these hideous alien things. And there were a lot of 50s science fiction movies and novels that sort of played on that. Absolutely, yes. Like Heinlein's Puppet Masters and The Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And so I wanted to do a sort of that do that kind of story but with a more kind of beatnik flair where you're on the side of the aliens instead of on the side of the police and so you're, you're with Burroughs and Turing and then naturally they do a road trip across America and they get to uh, Los Alamos where they're doing the, the nuclear tests and then they get involved with uh, a, uh, a nuclear test and the, the book reaches denouement about they're trying to... I mean, the police are chasing Curing, they're having pitched battles with them, and Burroughs, they're shooting at them. And then there's a denouement having to do with whether... Well, it all comes to a head there. Of course. Yes. Don't really yeah. reveal too much. Yeah. <laughs> now, trans-realism, you mentioned the... Uh, in a, a trans-real mode, there's a quote... Oh, see if I can find it from your original manifesto. I was looking at it today, and I wonder if you could explain to me a little more about what you mean in, at this particular point in the manifesto. You say, transrealism tries to treat not only immediate reality, but also the higher reality in which life is embedded. And I'm really intrigued by this notion of the higher reality in which we are embedded. Would you like to talk to me a bit about that? Well, there's a couple of aspects to the higher reality. The one is the sort of uh, the myth of the hero aspect, where we're living out archetypal tales. You know, the, the wanderer, the uh, the journey, the uh, the apprentice, the helper, and so being aware of those levels in your own life, because there's only so many things people can do. And you are, whether or not you want to, you're acting out these archetypal situations. So that's one aspect of it. Another is that uh, there's the dream world that we uh, we carry our dreams within us, and you know they're more open to us at nighttime. But even in the daytime, we're still dreaming at some level. And that's another part of the higher reality, that in transrealism we take these sort of dreamy fantasia quick imaginings and they might become something real. 
where instead of a, a simple example, instead of imagining you could fly, you do fly. Or imagining that you can point at something and have it disintegrate. That mm. does happen. And so then that's that's interesting to see that stuff brought out. And uh, a lot of the things that you see, oh, say in the news, it's always very superficial and it's limited to certain current topics, you know, that become, the media becomes obsessed with and people are so hypnotized and brainwashed, they think that this is, you know, what's happening in the world. And you know, it's not at all, it's things that they're being told just to distract them, you know, to, to, to oppress them to exploit them, to get them to buy things. And with transrealism, the idea is we're trying to think of the world as this a dream, a myth, a story that you're part of, and that frees you up to, to look at it in a sort of wider context. How do you relate, I know you have a great, you have a great interest in surrealism and the surrealists, and of course they prefixed realism with a sur and yours with a trans, do you see any big difference between what they were attempting to do and their work, whether it was painting or photography or writing, and what you are attempting to do? Well, there's similarities and differences. I mean, certainly I was aware of that word in picking transrealism. And I think sort of a, a quintessential aspect of surrealism is collage, just taking two arbitrary things and putting them together what is it Tristan Sara said? Was it the, the marriage of an umbrella and a sewing machine on the ah, operating yes. table? The Comte de l'Autremont. Yeah. yeah, 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 in Maldoror. Yeah. And I like that stuff, but I thought with transrealism, I'm taking the toolkit of science fiction, and so I'm starting with realism. And rather than going for completely arbitrary uh, cut-up style juxtapositions, I'd want to kind of enable these things to get to become objective correlatives things like time travel objective correlative for memory mm. telepathy objective correlative for the hope that somebody understands what you're saying uh, merging your body with somebody objective correlative for, for sex or love and so it's a way of kind of heightening the realism, so that's why it's sort of trans-realism. And then, because you're bringing psychic archetypes into play, it's a hope of getting it at something a little deeper. You also have a concern with, uh, I can see a, a corollary here too, with the surrealist concern with everyday life, in that their art and their, their production was, was an attempt to reveal to people that the world as we see it is remarkable enough. Yes. You don't need to invent, you know, dragons or anything else. Not really. In fact, there's, if we had the eyes to see it, there'd be, as they called it, the marvelous in everyday life. Uh, that's certainly, that's very much a concern of mine, to, to be aware of the, the wonder and beauty of the world just as it is. And you don't necessarily have to you don't have to go anywhere, you don't have to take drugs, you don't have to buy anything. Just your own backyard is you know, this, the paradise. Uh, with 
conceivably many different things. I mean, just paying attention, if you look, look at the grass, if you look at an insect, if you look at the way the, the tree branches move in a breeze, uh, it's all very, very wonderful and very deep and interesting. And uh, again, there's always this thing that the commercial media do. They want to sort of just throw that out. You know, we've done that. We've done nature. <laughs> it's old hat. Yeah, that was on at seven o'clock in the documentary. Then, yes. <laughs> and uh, but if you, you know, if you ever get out of your car or you turn off your machines and walk out in the woods particularly you get maybe a mile or two away from civilization it's still there you know and it's always there and we worry what if the human race died out <laughs> the world would go on there's it would still be there you know mother nature doing doing her thing and that's uh that's the more interesting thing in life and it goes deeper than that too, doesn't it? Because Mother Nature doing her thing is something that's really concerned you a lot for a long time, um, particularly in your, with your interest in Wolfram's ideas about universal computation, the idea that the world itself is computing all the time. Well, I think, yeah, I think that's a deep and important idea. That, uh, because we like to preen ourselves on the little machines that we've made think well this I've got a computer that can compute a million digits of pi you know it can do it on my cell phone it can do it in 10 seconds and but the world is a, it does it does all that just as well I mean if you think of physical processes as computation the world is computing at the maximum allowable rate it's you can't go any faster than the vibrations of an atom. I mean, that's, and the information is squeezed in as densely as it can be squeezed with the quantum bits. And uh, sometimes there's this sort of foolish idea people have of, it was kind of a popular trope in science fiction more a few years ago than right now, of tearing apart our world and making a, a huge video game model of it. And for some reason, that was supposed to be more interesting. <laughs> but, of course, if you've worked with computers at all, you know that this model is going to suck. <laughs> it's going to have a very limited level of precision, and it's going to crash, you know. And, and so far, the world doesn't seem to crash. That's, that this thing could be running for billions of years, and there's no glitch, you know, where it just stops working. Or maybe there are, and we don't notice. Everything stops for millennia. But would that even make sense to say that? I don't think so. So, yeah, I think, I mean, I like computers. I like things we can do with them. But I think it's important to remember that nature is, is doing equally complicated computations. Your recently formulated the theorem of the incompleteness, theorem of the natural world? Yes. That was a theorem I always wanted to, to prove when I was in graduate school. Because Gödel's incompleteness theorem says that any finitely describable theory of mathematics, there will inevitably be statements which the theory can neither prove nor disprove. And that, 
at the the time when Gödel proved this around 1930, that was a surprise to people because we had this idea that we could get you know a nice theory and that would sort of encapsulate all of knowledge and all the things could be proved from it. I mean, the world could be that way, but it just isn't, as it turns out. <laughs> and uh, and it's sort of the move that I got from Wolfram of saying, if we view natural processes as computations, it turns out a computation is fairly, in some ways, similar to a formal theory. And so the analog of having a theorem you can't prove is having some natural system and some statement about what it might do in the future. And then if you can't prove or disprove that, that would be an example of a sort of natural incompleteness. And so then with a little sleight of hand, I got this theorem that says, for any finitely described formal system of the natural world and any complex natural process you care to pick, there will be statements about this process that can't be proved or disproved in your theory. Which means that a totalization, a grand theory of everything, is not really possible. In a sense, it's not, no. It certainly, it's... Sometimes they use it, well, if we could have a theory of everything, it would just predict the why the natural forces are the way they are and what the the weights of the atomic, subatomic particles are. I mean, they're hoping for that sort of limited amount, and maybe that's possible, maybe not. But certainly there couldn't be any theory where you would say, I'm just, you know, I've got this, this relatively complex secret of the universe type system, and you want to know what, you know, what color, how many petals are going to be on the rose in Maggie Jones's garden next summer, you're not going to be able to do that. There's going to be lots of things that, that you're not going to be able to predict. And that's, it's not that you don't have enough computational power, it's that it's absolutely unpredictable in this theory. You could say, well, I've got a better theory. Well, fine, but then there'll be something else that isn't predictable. So in the end, that determinism that was the great dream of so many scientific thinkers that you would be able to predict that predictability the whole you know Laplace's notion that you know give me a if I knew the forces acting on this billiard table from the initial break I'd be able to tell you where every ball ended up is beyond our ken is that right well it's sort of complicated <laughs> because it turns out determinism and predictability are different things. In other words, I can have a computation and it's deterministic in that if I reset it and start it running, it would do the same thing again. So you'd say, but then isn't it predictable? And it turns out you can have a deterministic computation. It's not predictable in the sense that I can't, you might, the question might be, will this thing ever print out five nines in a row? And you can't, it might be that you can't predict that. Now, one thing could have, it might eventually print five nines, and then you'd say, aha, now I know. But it might be that it never is going to print out five nines. It's going to run, you watch it forever. Mm. You never see the five nines, but you never know, they might still come. Of course. So if something can be deterministic, 
without being predictable. That's something people have a little trouble understanding. And whether we could actually do the perfect billiard table prediction, it's not actually ruled out. I mean, there will be some things that you can predict, but um, you might not be able to predict where the balls, if they're going to keep bouncing for 100 years. Yes, <laughs> yes. Sometimes the situation is that you can predict it, but only in a weak sense that you have to actually build a simulation of the system and let it run for a hundred years, and then you'll know. But then, often there won't be any shortcut prediction. Right, of course. Yeah. So, where do we head from here? Where do we head from here? Self-publishing. Self-publishing. <laughs> that's right. Well, that's my new trip. Because uh, the book business is really, it took a big hit when Borders went bankrupt. And they're having trouble learning how to deal with the ebook. And there's this uh, conglomerations. They're looking for more narrow genre books. So it's getting harder for me to publish my books. And uh, it could be I'm getting old and maybe my books aren't any good anymore. Maybe I'm finger painting the walls with my own shit. <laughs> but it doesn't feel that way. <laughs> I think they're as good as they were. So uh, it's becoming very easy to self-publish, very easy to publish e-books and to put a file up where people can get it printed for something that resembles a book, even though in some sense it isn't a book since it wasn't produced by a big publisher. So uh, that's something I've been exploring for the last year or two. It looks like my touring novel has kind of come out in that form. Now, what do you predict then for publishing as we know it? Are the big conglomerates going to die or are they going to, will they find an inevitable death like, you know, like the dinosaurs, I suppose, with a limited, limited resources if they're just producing genre works and there's no, there's no ecology of, of, you know, writing. That's uh, an ecosystem of varying, you know, things feeding each other and supporting the whole deal. But they're actually trying to narrow it down in a way. Yeah. Does that mean they're going to? It's going to die as we know it, and the future is in fact with transreal publishing. It could be. <laughs> yes. I think there will be more and more. I mean, the younger writers I talk to, it's no longer a matter of, of shame to say, well, I self-published some of my books. It used to be that that meant that you weren't, you know, a, a, uh, a competent or a serious writer if you couldn't get somebody else to pay you to publish your book. But now, there, and the, but then it's, there's complications. There's the filter issue. If we have 10,000 writers publishing their own books, how do you sort out? And that's one thing that publishers, one of their roles at least used to be that they would be a, a reducing valve. They would filter out. The crap. Yes. Yeah. But then uh, then you get the anxiety that they're becoming unadventurous and they're filtering out good things as well as crap. That's always the worry or that they're promoting things that aren't so good. So there's, I mean, 
is some kind of role for something like publishers. Mm, aggregators, maybe, you might call them. Yeah. That would sort through and make a good faith, somehow have, you know, some legitimacy in, in the, the public eye. But uh, the actual mechanics of what they do is becoming less, much more of a distributed thing because in the end, if you self-publish, the people that print your books very often are the same people that print the publisher's books. So, and the distribution is is becoming mostly online and social networks. Because I live in San Jose, there's two million people, and we have one bookstore in town. It's crazy. Yeah. So it's uh, it's hard to predict exactly where it's going. I was ever since I started publishing when I was about 30 it's been about 35 years every year people would tell me especially my agents would tell me this is the worst year I've ever seen in publishing things have never been worse <laughs> <laughs> I think it's finally true <laughs> but it's it's a transition time it's a, it's a strange period it would be like the period when they stopped having gas lights and they started having electricity or they stopped using horses and buggies and they started using cars. And it's, it's just hard to see past. We're in such a, a chaotic, broken, changing time. And all you can do is stay, uh, stay lively. I have this line that drives my um, literary studies colleagues insane whenever I say it. But because I'm working in a, an image media part of the, the university, I say that we're living in a post-literate century that the text is dead and the image is, is king uh -huh. and of course you can see the steam coming out of their ears because they've dedicated their whole lives to talking about literature but <coughs> I, I wonder if, uh, if it I mean I'm saying it half jokingly of course well and you do yeah. teach courses on film that's so right you're, so you're safe it's my vested interest <laughs> that's right I'll be still alive and you guys will be dead but um, <laughs> I do <laughs> sort of um, Hey, wait, these, there goes our sound. Yeah. The neighbor just turned on a chainsaw. Wow. Well, we'll see what happens. This recorder's driving me nuts. I can, it, you know, the little bars that tell you how high the, it's going. It's, it's been quite low, even though it's right, right here. You could turn up the gain. I could turn up the gain. Should That's I, probably a button on the side. <laughs> probably is a button on the side. Hang on, what I'll do is I'll, I'll stop here. And he says, optimistically, Whoa, okay, stop there. I'll see if the camera's still going and we're everything's hunky dory there. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, you're still there. I think it's Wink! Wink! Wink, wink, wink! This is gold! Gold! <laughs> I wish I was recording this. Okay, wait a minute. Let's go to the sound. What's it say? Oh, sound? Let's Emperor. see how my sound's doing. Go over there and talk. Let me see what your bars are like. Okay, I'm talking, talking, talking. Oh yeah, your bars are fine. You're 50%. Okay. I'll put it low, and then I'll go here. <coughs> how are we going? No, it's still, it's still low. If I put high gain, what happens? Then the bars go higher. Oh yeah, they do. I just learned that yesterday. Today. Me too. Rudy and Leon with their new recorders. <laughs> yeah. High tech, 
savvy type guys. Have this no little pig went to market. <laughs> this little pig stayed home. This little pig had roast beets. This little pig had none. And this little pig went, Wee! 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 Roast beets, did you say? Roast beets, yeah. Yeah, so it's not roast beef over here, it's roast beets. Well, sometimes I'm known as the beet in my family. Oh, okay. Why is that? Because I get red. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm also a beatnik science fiction writer. Well, that's right. So I'm the, the, that kind of beat, too. Beatnik SF. <laughs> that's where it's at. Yeah, baby. Beatnik SF. Yeah, Beatnik SF. I think it's time for... There's got to be a revival. There's got to be. There's got to be a beatnik. You've always written beatnik SF. Is That's all I ever wanted to write. Is there? Uh, yeah. Burroughs and Kerouac used to dream of writing science fiction. Really? Yeah, they no wanted idea. to. Well, I don't know. Burroughs was interested, but I had no idea that Kerouac was. Yeah, he talked mm. about it quite a bit. He had something, I think, called City, City, City. I'm not sure I've seen it. It was supposed to be science fiction. They thought it would be cool in the same way that they thought jazz was cool. Mm because it was an indigenous American art form. I mean, you can argue SF is also European, but there's but an aspect of it that's sort of American. No, I agree totally. I think the, um, the efflorescence of magazines, the pulp era, of course, that yes. began it all, even though, of course, SF is, is very Well, we've got H.G. Wells and Jules Verne, of course, but yeah. yeah. But, but it took the Americans to really drag it in the gutter. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Take it around the track a few times, beat it up, yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, do you think anybody else has been successful in beatnik SF? Is there anybody you could name and increase my education in this degree? Because well, I, I think know. cyberpunk is a beatnik SF movement. I would say all the cyberpunks. Well, there's this thread of counterculture that goes from the beatniks to the hippies to the punks to the grungers to whatever they call them nowadays. Mm. And looking back, you know, there's the Bohemians, the Romantics, and it's always focused on a turning away from commercial reality, a focus on the inward mind, seeking ecstasy, mm. uh, finding joy in the, the ordinary. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll, right. A long time ago, I guess, the, was it the turn of the century, maybe a little earlier? I mean, Mackin lived, I'm thinking of this British writer, Arthur Mackin, who's most famous for his horror stories and tales of the supernatural. I know his name, yes. Yes. Well, he wrote a, a wonderful essay, um, a sort of didactic essay called Hieroglyphics. And I can't remember whether he wrote it at the turn of the last century or the end of the one before, wherever the hell we are now. And, uh, his ba the basic polemic was that the only good literature was the literature that Mackin liked, of course, but the, the only good literature was the literature that had this one particular quality, ecstasy. Ecstasy, yes. Yeah. And he would examine the history of British literature and showed how even his Dickens had some ecstasy, but Anthony Trollope didn't. And okay. that there were... Yeah. He looked for this one quality, and of course he believed that his whole writing was dedicated to creating this particular feeling. Yes. Or, and it's more than a feeling, I suppose. It would have to be transcendence, wouldn't it? Because that's, that's what the word means. To yes. stand outside of yourself. Yeah. One, the other, I mean, there's sense of wander mm, mm. people try for. And I like the word gnarl. 
Yeah. Trying to get something that's sort of surprisingly weird and baroque. Mm. And yeah, getting you out of yourself. So that was actually that was one of the things I did want to ask you because it is a concern of mine and it's, it's almost purely personal because I'm pretty sure when the chainsaws start up that <laughs> I'm pretty sure when I was a kid the reason that I began reading science fiction was because it evoked in me this sense of transcendence that there was yes. a greater world it wasn't just my day-to-day -day going to school you know watching boring television hanging out with my friends, that there was, there was something beyond that I could get some knowledge of through reading science fiction, or get a, you know, a taste for. I agree with that. Uh, I'm going to hang on for a second. That, that's going to stop. Okay, so, so you're saying... <laughs> die, monster, die! The thing about science fiction that you like is that it's transcendent. Yeah, it was my, I guess it was my non-spiritual or non-religious non notion that there was something that could transport you, you know, psychically. Maybe least. we should just stop though. There's no yeah. use trying to take someone that shoot or something like that. Though. Okay, here we go. I press that. Thank you.